Welcome to the Seeding Social Good podcast by Turnkey. I'm Katrina Van Hus, chair and founder of Turnkey, and this podcast is all about figuring out what works to help us all do more good faster. We have uh, a good friend for many, many years and a veteran of the industry, Randy Corey. And Randy, I'm going to ask you to detail your background. I was the executive director of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in upstate New York. Um, then I joined the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation in upstate New York. So I was executive director at JDRF for seven years. And then I went to the March of Dimes as state director of North Carolina for five years. The good news is I got all the best practices from everywhere I went. Now I am with 501C Services, which is a company that helps nonprofits save time and money by outsourcing their unemployment. Um, so Randy, my first question is this, uh, we used to call it, well, I guess we used to call it uh, walkathons, you know, and then we started calling it peer-to-peer and now we're calling it social fundraising. Um, right. What do you think about that shift? Do you think it's accurate? Yes, I do. Uh, I think social fundraising is actually a very good way to, it's really a good way to describe it because it is social. Yeah. It is me asking Katrina for a donation, or it's Katrina asking me for a donation, or me asking the neighbor next door for a donation. It's very social. And then now with social media, it's even bigger. Yes, yes. So um, tell me, uh, you know, in the old days, actually, I missed the whole pledge period that came in right after that ended, you know, when people figured out like we could just ask for the money once and get it at that time. Yeah. Uh, so I missed that. But uh, tell me, what do you think the most important new kinds of social fundraising uh, uh, vehicles are out there? Live stream, social media. What are your thoughts? Right. Definitely social media. Um, when Facebook first started their fundraising campaign. And it was amazing because we were having people getting gifts from people they hadn't talked to in years uh, who followed them on Facebook. Um, you know, I had a boss who said that she, you know, she signed up to do our walk and said that she got a donation from somebody she'd met in the third grade. And, you know, so social media is huge in this fundraising. Yeah. So um, most of you know, Otis is a social psychologist. Otis, uh, the word social in social fundraising, can you give us an idea of how much power there is there in terms of the human dynamic? Social's everything. Uh, you know, you, you, you can't think about people without the social context. And, uh, you know, the thing I find so interesting is uh, how people underestimate how much influence they have on their peers. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Bonds uh, has a book uh, aptly titled, You Have More Influence Than You Think, which is the perfect title. And it talks about uh, research that she did with uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, where they looked at uh, fundraisers and they asked fundraisers, let's say they had a thousand dollar goal. They said, well, how many people do you think you're going to have to ask in order to get to the thousand dollars? And on average, people only had to ask half as many people as they thought they did. So we we underestimate how much influence we have on people by by a half. 
um, we're much more influential than we think we are on our peers. Now, you know, interestingly, just as a footnote, in terms of uh, email, they overestimated how much influence they thought that they would have on their peers. So they had to ask many more people by email. So it's that it's that direct, direct person to person contact that is really so compelling. It's really hard to say no to someone who's who's a peer. Um, I'm going to stick with Facebook fundraising for a moment. Um, uh, Randy and I have talked about recognition and its impact on the behavior of fundraisers for many years. And we, she and I share a common philosophy and have many thoughts on the matter. Randy, tell me how important you think recognition is to volunteer fundraisers. Oh my gosh, it is everything. People love to be recognized. You know, I would rather take a volunteer walk chair and bring him up on stage and thank him in front of a group than anything else. And, and that would mean more to him than anything else. I mean, I could give him a jacket, I could give him a motorcycle. I mean, it, really, it's that public recognition of his hard work, his dedication, and his commitment to the cause. Now, I'm gonna um, go back to Otis. Otis, your dissertation was on what? My dissertation was on the uh, interaction of moral identity and recognition on fundraising. I'll never forget the title. <laughs> uh, so tell me, um, you just got, or you, uh, what do you call it when you don't prove your point? Oh, I got a null result. Um, I, had, I had to defend a dissertation that didn't, didn't work, basically, yes. Which I thought was brilliant because it really told us something and, and, in my mind, is extremely helpful to the industry. And the something that it told us was what, Otis? Well, fortunately, it didn't matter what you thought, but my committee thought it was brilliant. <laughs> so be, because they passed me. But, uh, you know, what I did was I tried to replicate a study uh, where we used traditional recognition uh, for fundraisers who were actually involved in, in uh, Facebook fundraising. And what, just to cut to the chase, what I found was Traditional recognition, be having their name put on a website or whatever, didn't matter at all to these fundraisers who were fundraising on on Facebook. And you know what I concluded from that was just being seen by their friends as someone who does good, who fundraises for this organization, was plenty enough recognition. They didn't need this, you know, traditional recognition at all. So the Facebook fundraising or Facebook recognition in and of itself is so overpowering that it it met their need. Is that what you're uh, saying? Yes, it, it's to use it. It was so salient. You know, when when you when you go out and do a fundraiser on Facebook, you're telling all your friends that see that you put the Facebook the fundraiser up. Hey, I'm the kind of person that supports a nonprofit. I'm a good person. And, and, you know, that in, of, in and of itself is very reinforcing. People have what psychologists talk about uh, is image motivation. We're very motivated for our peers and our friends to see us as someone who does things for the greater good. And so that was the kind of recognition that they were getting just by putting up a, a, a fundraiser on Facebook. Love it. Randy, does that jive? I think it, I think it dovetails nicely with what you just said. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Um, it, it really, it, it, the thing about the Facebook fundraising is you have so many people on your list there that normally I would never pick up the phone and call them and say, would you give me a donation? But I posted on Facebook, mm -hmm. my stepdaughter called because I had put on Facebook, I'm walking for the Hydrocephalus Association as a staff member, we've got a staff mm -hmm. team. 
And my stepdaughter called and said, so is this something I can donate to? And it was like, uh, yes, you may. And, you know, she donated $100. That's great. I love it. Um, I want to go back to the social aspect of fundraising in general and, and take a leap. Um, so within a development department, there are different channels, different revenue buckets, so to speak. Um, Randy, could you comment on what you think the relationship is of social fundraising activities to the rest of the revenue? Oh, absolutely. I have always been a believer because I've seen it hundreds of times that the first entree to an organization is through a social fundraising event. So someone who has a child with hydrocephalus, they look up the hydrocephalus association online and uh, they, they're not sure, but they see there's a walk in their area and they go out to that walk and they meet other parents and they see other kids. And all of a sudden, now they're part of the association. And I would say probably 80%, well, maybe more, 85% of our major donors at any organization started out through a walk. I that was their first entree into the organization. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, one of your fellow contributors to the book also made a great point about when a major donor shows up in the major donor pipeline, they, as she described it, come in bright and shiny uh, with no cost attached because right. you've already paid the cost in your revenue bucket to right. acquire them and to grow them to a certain point. What do you, what does that number one make you feel as you're a social fundraising expert? And number two, how how might that lack of accurate accounting hurt nonprofit? Well, I think, you know, if you don't, and this would be silos, and that drives me crazy, um, especially in a nonprofit organization. You know, well, we've got the development director here. We've got the peer-to-peer the -peer person here. We've got, you know, et cetera. No, it, it as I used to say, we're all in the same boat, rowing the same way, hopefully, toward the same goal. But um, I will admit, I've been in organizations where there were some territorial issues. Well, you know, my gala raised more than your golf tournament. Who cares? I mean, I didn't, as executive director, I didn't care. Um, but it really, uh, you can't, you have, it's all about cultivating. Yeah. It's cultivating the person. Yes, they care about your mission enough to come to a walk. They care about your mission enough to take the next step. They, uh, and, uh, you know, a smart development director, and mine was very smart, would pull a list every month of all of the walk donors, $1,000 or more, mm -hmm. and she'd start to cultivate them send them a newsletter with a little post-it note saying, oh, there's an article on page seven you might find interesting. Yeah, it's all about what we used to call moves management yeah. and cultivating the major donor. Yeah, it's interesting that moves management for some has fallen from favor. And I think that that's part of ignoring that, you know, the expense that's associated with acquisition once people move into a new revenue bucket. Right. Interesting. All right. I want to read a quote, your quote, 
out loud. And then I want you and Otis to tell us what it means. Um, from Randy Corey, veteran pro do-gooder. This goes back to one of the first rules of fundraising. Donors give to your organization because you meet needs, not because you have needs. Yes, that is probably one of the first things I learned. People support winners. And when you can demonstrate that you're making an impact and that you are actually improving the situation, they will support you. Excellent. And, and Otis, I think you can tie that together. Um, weirdly, Otis writes a lot of copy for a lot of clients because we consider words incredibly important because they are the transfer point of the strategy. Otis, talk about um, your insight into this conversation and how we talk to donors. Yeah, would you read that quote one more time? Sure. It is my favorite quote in the book. It's on page 112 of your hymnal, if you'd like to read along. <laughs> Here we go. This goes back to one of the first rules of fundraising. Donors give to your organization because you meet needs, not because you have needs. Right. You know, why I love that is, uh, you know, there's an area of psychology called philanthropic psychology that has really gathered steam over the last 10 or 15 years. It's centered in the UK at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy. And one thing that their research has told us that, um, you know, it, for, for donors, for supporters, it's really, as Randy said, it's really about what they want to accomplish. And, um, it, you know, things that, that values that they have in their identity that is consistent with the mission of the organization. So, uh, you know, really appealing to the supporters for what they can do. You know, in, in, in this scenario, the organization is just kind of the instrument by which they accomplish things. So, uh, you know, if you're the kind, are you the kind of person that wants to feed, feed the hungry, then here's an organization that you can go through to do that. Are you the kind of person that wants to care for homeless animals like me? Here's an organization, the Richmond SBCA, which I donate to every month. Thank you very much, uh, that I can accomplish that. So it's really about the donor's needs, not about the organization's needs. Uh, the donor is, uh, is really in a different place than we've typically thought about them. And that's why, you know, you mentioned uh, the copy that we write. Uh, one of the things that our clients noticed right away was, gee, you know, where's all the stuff about me? You know, it's, it's, it's not about you. Uh, it's to, you know, it's not all about talking about the organization. It's really talking about what the donor can do to make something happen through their relationship with the organization. I love it. And he does give to the SPCA and no more dogs, Otis, no more dogs. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, Randy has been with me on this journey a long time and we met through uh, the work I was doing and Turnkey was doing at the time, uh, recognition gift programs. So over the years, you and I worked together and you and I were very philosophically aligned in that we felt like we should give less. Like if we could, if we could make sure we could get everybody on stage, we would have ditched all the stuff and just mm -hmm. done that. But of course, that's not reasonable to execute. Um, Otis, why would Brandy and I not want to use gifts and instead to bring people on stage. What's the philosophy behind that? And then Randy, I'm going to get you to tell that great story about gift cards. Go ahead. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we started writing about this. We've written about this a lot. We started writing about this in our uh, uh, our book, Dollar Dash. Um, but basically, people 
people live in two different worlds. They live in a world of social relationships and they live in a world of market relationships. And social relationships, they're they're in these these kind of relationships because it's just the right thing to do. Uh, it, it's as I said, the the values are aligned and so forth. In a in a market relationship, you're in something to get something. There's some kind of a transaction. And what we want for our supporters is to be in a social relationship with the organization. I give monthly to the Richmond SBCA because it's the right thing to do. You know, it's something that I it aligns with my values. Um, but then when I start getting a, a $50 target gift card at the end of the year from the Richmond SPCA, you know, it suggests to me that, gosh, you know, I'm in this, and this is unconscious, but now it's, it kind of shifts to a market relationship. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've given in order to get something. And what we, what psychologists find is that when you mix a market relationship with a social relationship, the market relationship crowds out the social relationship. So you want to avoid that at all costs. But the March of Jobs didn't avoid it, did they? Did they? No, they didn't. Now, I, I will be very honest. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, JDRF, March of Dimes, even the Hydrocephalus Association, we all did the, you know, raise $100 and get a t-shirt and yeah. raise 250 and get a jacket or whatever. The other thing is with hydrocephalus, because it was such a little known issue it was about awareness too and we were hoping that people were wearing their hydrocephalus association sweatshirt and someone in the grocery store would say oh my brother has that but uh at the march of dimes uh i was the state director for north carolina and they had this idea of let's do a pilot program and instead of giving we still gave t-shirts but instead of at the 250 500 thousand all those levels they did a gift card and uh so if you raised five hundred dollars you got a gift card that was um like twenty five dollars the incentive prize ratio has always been about five or six percent um if you raised ten thousand dollars you got a five hundred dollar gift card and at first we were like oh my god this is great because we can put it in a number 10 envelope and mail it to people instead of putting it in a box and bubble wrapping and all that stuff. And then, then we started to see the holes in the philosophy. Um, the other problem was it was, you know, nobody really knows what it costs us for a t-shirt, but when you're giving them a gift card, they know exactly what it costs. And uh, I, I said, I, I don't ever want to do this again. Uh, the only way we could do it, honestly, is to have a you know, return receipt requested, which would be a nightmare of proportions I can't even begin to describe. And it just, it didn't work. And even, and the other thing was, it was all redeemed. Now, you have sweatshirts, you have jackets, you have barbecue sets, whatever you have. And there's going to be people who say, I don't need another sweatshirt. I'm not going to bother to redeem it. And we probably had normally with the hard items, 70% would redeem it. But with those gift cards, 100% redeemed them. And so it was expensive on top of everything else. 
uh, not a good idea. So um, one of the things that pushed us away from doing recognition gift programs was a study that we did for the California Division of the American Cancer Society with um, uh, Vicki Labello. And what we studied was the impact of the highest level gift because we were giving what we called fungible items. There were things like grills and camping sets, things that were easily priced on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, some of them didn't even have the Relay logo on it. And what we found was that in year one, it looked like we got more revenue because we were using those recognition gifts or incentive gifts, probably more appropriately phrased. Um, but in year two, we found that the people who had redeemed those gifts perform worse than people who didn't. So Otis, what are your thoughts about what's happening inside of a, fund, a volunteer fundraiser's mind when they are number one, offered uh, essentially cash and number two, when they make use of it? Well, you know, I can I can tell you about the research of uh, one of the great living social psychologists, Edward DC, uh, who is probably the, the foremost authority on on human motivation. And, you know, when he did an analysis of studies where they looked at what happens when you give extrinsic gifts to people who are intrinsically motivated, you know, what what he found was that that the worst thing uh, that you can the scenario that you can set up is what, what psychologists call um reward contingent behavior, giving gifts for reward contingent behaviors. And, and what that means is if you raise $2,000, you're going to get a branded cooler. Um, uh, you know, these expected gifts are demotivating uh, in the long run. They, they're, they, you know, it's counterintuitive, but that, but they, they, they extinguish behaviors. Um, unexpected gifts, uh, you know, are, are in a different category. As long as, uh, in my opinion, they're of a modest value. I think that, you know, as as Randy was saying, when you've got an expected gift, it's always about, gosh, I didn't get it in time, or, you know, it was late, or the box was damaged. You know, an unexpected gift shows up, and it's delightful. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's very, very different. You know, that that's like a true thank you. And DC also found that uh, um, uh, impact communications uh, was very, very motivating. Um, because you raised $2,000, uh, 80 kids were fed lunch for a week, you. you know, these kinds of things. So, you know, if you're going to give gifts, be a very modest value, have them show up unexpectedly, uh, make it delightful, you know, and uh, that, that that's great. And then these impact communications would be very, very motivating to people. But the re reward contingent behavior, you know, these incentive programs are just, uh, it's a death spiral out there. You just don't, do not want to do that. The problem is it's so ingrained in all of the organizations that do social fundraising that stopping it is it, it's going to be a sea change, and I'd love to see it. Um, so to you know to your point, it, it right now you're in a box, but um, to temper the ill effects, I, I think those three things Otis mentioned: low value unexpected, mm -hmm. keeping it brand, although expected as part of the problem. It is expected. Right. How, That's how the problem. It. Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to switch gears. I want to talk about publicity because Randy, you are the only person who, who talked about that in all the interviews that we did. There's this idea that if we get a lot of publicity for our walk, then it's going to just be great. Uh, what are your thoughts? This thing, that is something that drives me the craziest. Because volunteers do believe the more publicity we get, the more people we'll get. It doesn't happen. 
you know, no one ever bought a ticket for a gala because they heard it on the radio. Yeah. Unless they were connected to the mission. Um, so you might pick up two or three people that way. But at Hydrocephalus Association, I had 45 walks, all volunteer driven. And every single one of those volunteers tried to get on the, their local TV show with the weatherman or somebody and interviewing them about hydrocephalus, which was all great, but it did not increase their walk participation any. You know, publicity, it, it doesn't, it's not the be all and end all that people think it is. Um, I'm going to ask you a question I didn't ask you for our book interview. And, and that is, I would love for you to think back through all your career and tell me when and where did you work with your best volunteer leadership committee? Uh -huh. One was the Hydrocephalus Association. I had 45 walks that were totally volunteer driven. And I mean, volunteer driven. Did we train them? Oh, hell yes. I trained the hell out of them. Yeah. Um, I got them, you know, I brought them in for a weekend at our expense, every penny of it. And we taught them how you do a walk logistically, because that was the thing that worried them the most. Yeah. And then we talked about sponsorship and not to do spray and pray. Um, and so we taught them how to do it. And then we sent them on their way, but they chose the location. They chose the date. We preferred fall, but we tried to get everybody in the fall. Um, they chose uh, their committees. So Hydrocephalus Association, I had 108 volunteer leaders for 45 walks and they raised $2 million. That's great. There was only three of us staff supporting That's that. And I know that there's organizations that wish they could replicate that. Um, the other one was juvenile diabetes. And even though juvenile diabetes was running a corporate model, I had a logistics committee of 12. You know, I wasn't the one that was calling the Department of Transportation asking for traffic cones. I wasn't the one that was, you know, talking to the site about how we set up the route. I was at those meetings and you know, we had a big checklist in progress done, to be done, who was doing it, all of that good stuff. But I always considered myself a volunteer manager. People will ask me, why are you so successful in fundraising? And I said, I'm not successful in fundraising. I'm successful in managing volunteers. Yeah. Wow. Now, would I ask for the biggest sponsorship? Yes. But with Hydrocephalus Association, all 45 of those chairs got their own sponsorship from their own neighborhoods. Love it. Here's what I heard. I heard that you empowered your volunteers to the nth degree. You um, supported them and knocked down barriers where you needed to. Um, you gave them autonomy, um, bringing them to an offsite at your expense, at the organization's expense, must have felt like amazing recognition that you would invest in them that much. Um, and uh, you know that in and of itself is the best recognition um, that you could have. And what's number three? I can't remember number three of the trifecta. What Katrina is referring to is what we call the trifecta of satisfaction. There are three things that people who are satisfied report having in their lives. One is autonomy, as you mentioned. Second is competence. They have the opportunity to do important work and do it well. And the three is relatedness. 
they're connected to something bigger than themselves. So Randy, it sounds like these folks had uh, all three of those things in spades in uh, this scenario that you set up for them. A absolutely. And not only that, they got competitive with each other. Mm -hmm. So if the Buffalo Walk raised $90,000, Long Island is going, wait a minute, I've got to do 110. I mean, and even within their walks, their team captains were competitive, um, which just increased the, the revenue. That is great. Randy, uh, as always, you lift me up and you teach me something new every time we talk. And I deeply appreciate you for that. I used to say, if you go to a walk and you look around, you say, what's the big deal? You rent some tents, you get some tables and chairs, you get some food and, and water. What's that take? Three weeks? Well, no. If you do it the right way, it takes about nine months. Yeah. But um, people don't see all of the stuff that goes on in the background. So, Absolutely true. What, one of the things I love about this book is if people will do it, it will keep them from making all the mistakes I made along the way. Yeah, that's it. And if their boss reads it, even better. <laughs> um, because it, everybody thinks they know how to do it. Mm -hmm. but they don't. That's why we have to teach them. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. I completely agree. This is uh, it's a very unique and special skill and, you know, looked at from the outside, it looks a little bit like magic and from the inside, it can be confusing. And uh, I know you've saved me a lot of skin knees with your story. Change starts with just one person, you. If today's episode got your gears turning, don't forget to share it with your network. And hey, why not drop us a review? Your review helps more people find us and spread the good. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, this is Katrina signing off from Seeding Social Good Podcast by Turnkey. Stay inspired, keep making waves, and let's create a better world together.